Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson, and today we're starting a new mini-series. It'll be a four-part mini-series called Biblical Anthropology, and it kind of goes along with Nick's and High Point's sermon series that they're doing right now. And Nick, there's a reason why you did the sermon series. Do you want to tell us why that is? Yeah, so um, at Trinity Seminary, which is in the Chicago area, there is a um, there is a sub think tank called the Henry Center, and they um, received a grant through the John Stott Foundation to do each year to focus on one part of the doctrine of creation, like what does it mean to be created. Mm-hmm. And this year, which was the third or fourth year, the focus was what does it mean to be created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And so it was the focus was partly to that I had to do a like um, a focus group with members of my congregation that were in the sciences. So it was like three doctors, a physicist or a geologist, um, two counselors, that sort of thing. And we, we had to like, uh, like explore the doctrine, like trying to take in the best of modern scientific research and look at the scriptures and try to understand as best we could how these two um, reconciled with each other. And so that they felt as people in the sciences that they were seen and cared about in the church, but that mm-hmm. a lot of pastors are kind of scientifically illiterate. And so they'll preach about sciences oftentimes negatively in ways they really don't need to or shouldn't. And so it was meant to like bring us closer to people in the sciences in our department, become more scientifically literate in our preaching, and then also explore a doctrine, one of the doctrines of creation. And this year it was the image of God, which is the one I wanted to do. And so I was really excited. Our church got selected for it and it was like about seven churches. And then I got to go to Trinity for a consortium with a bunch of theologians and stuff about, about it. It was, it was really fun. It was a great time. I feel like it it already like matches up with with how you already do your sermons, right? Like, well, you tell me they yeah. usually do like a little bit of psychology in the beginning or philosophy com- combat in the beginning or something, right? Yeah, yeah. I I try to think about what what am I going to say in the sermon, and what do people in our culture already believe that would inhibit their ability to find what I'm saying to be plausible. Yeah. Right. Where they, where they just emotionally would say, well, I can't believe that. That's not, yeah. that can't be right. And so what do I, what I need to break down? And so then I try to de, I deconstruct that. And then I try to construct what scripture teaches. Yeah. Well then the, I mean, yeah. So the best place to start then is, is with the image of God. And I think we're going to start all the way. Well, before I start, well, I'll say we did a podcast called what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Probably in August of mm-hmm. last year. And we talk about some of these themes in there, but this is going to be a more put together mini series. So you can go listen to that if you want to, but we'll start with this. So I, in Genesis one twenty six is kind of where we first see these. God says, let us make man in our image. And so I guess we'll just start with that is what does he mean by making man in our image? Yeah. So let me just start with the plural us because people get hung up on that when God says let us, right? It's very common in ancient literature to God, for God to refer to himself, even if it's one God as us. For example, if you ever read the Quran, Hmm. in the Quran, I mean, Muslims could could not be more adamant that God is one. And yet uh, Allah in the Quran constantly refers to himself as we. It's we, 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 we. Because it's it's the we of, it's called the we of majesty, right? So sometimes people say, look, the Trinity is in Genesis 1. Because God says we, so it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's that's probably not right. I mean, we know from later revelation that that's kind of true, right? And so, may, But that's not what we means here. Does that make sense? What does it mean? It means that God is the absolute majestic king over all of creation. 
So right. it's like a way of saying so saying us and making it like plural or more than one yeah. is is him like him like making himself like the great umbrella over all things in creation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but not but not impersonally. So like some people some people will be like, yeah, God is just the infinite. And like but that's meant to be kind of impersonal. Or yeah. like you sometimes you hear Jordan Peterson refer to like the infinite and he's in with Jordan Peterson, he's not specifying whether it's personal or impersonal. Yeah. Right. Right. But here, the, the 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 name for God is Elohim in the first chapter, which is a pl- which ha- it has a plural ending. So mm-hmm. it's like the God with a plural ending. And then when you get to Genesis two, and then in other places where you get Yahweh, the personal name for God, that is that is a direct personal name, and it's singular because God mm-hmm. is that is His name. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Whereas Elohim is like a title, the God. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So anyway, so God is speaking in his majestic person, right? He gets to create everything and determine everything, right? And then he says, let's make man in our own image and our likeness. So the way I broke this down, um, because part of it is right now in Old Testament scholarship, it's popular to say image in the Old Testament would have been an idol. Hmm. And so, so the parallel here is to an idol. But I think it's better to look at like all the different places in scripture in which this, this metaphor is used. And there's at least four that are really prominent, right? One is idols, right? In in Deuteronomy 4, God says, don't make any idols. That is, don't carve any – the word is often translated graven images. That is, carved by you, like images you made. And the reason for that is, is because there's already an image or, quote, idol of God on earth, and that's human beings. Right. We are he, – he, he carved the image. It's us. So we're not supposed to be going and carving any images to replace us. Right. Because if we are the idol of God's presence, then there's nothing for us to pray to besides God. Right. Right. If we start making an intermediary idol, I'm like, nope, I'm going to make this idol and that idol. Then we can turn our devotion to them, which does two things. One, instead of worshiping God, we worship the idol. And we also expect the idol God to do something rather than do it ourselves. Hmm. Well, in in your, in your, uh, your sermon, your, one that you did maybe this last week, you you mentioned that we like we are the idol of God, and it, I think it was make, made me feel weird because I never right. heard that before. And I was like, usually when you hear about idols in the church, it's like stay away from idols, right? Um, and then it was like I am an idol, and so it may, it just made me feel really weird. And I think maybe it made a lot yeah. of people feel weird. So yeah, and I think that's the right response. Yeah, right, because we're supposed to have an extremely negative. Like, but I also think that's the same response you should have emotionally the first time somebody says that you should be filled with the spirit of God yeah, or or possessed by the spirit of God. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like, what? Right. Right. And partly it's because we are supposed to hold with taboo, all occultic practices as Christians. Right. Like all of the occult, like like touching spirits and knowing spirits and speaking to spirits and blah, 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 blah. And then it's like, well, yeah, but it's not because we're supposed to be anti-spiritual. It's because we're supposed to be communing with the spirit of God and not others. Right. Mm. Similarly, like um, if I say you shouldn't pray to saints, right. Like Mm. don't pray to saints or to other beings. Right. It's, it's not because there is no one to pray to. It's because Jesus is the one mediator between God and men. Right. Mm. It says, it says in first Timothy. So in, in that sense, like there are a number of things that there is a strong taboo against that we should feel weird about. Mm-hmm. But then it turns out that like the reason we should feel that way is because it's it's kind of like like when Christians are really, really negative about sex and then young <laughs> women get in relationships or get they get married and they mm-hmm. and they can't let their husbands touch them because they feel dirty about right. sex. Yeah. It's not because sex was dirty. It was because 
sex with somebody who doesn't comprehensively care for you and is isn't yeah. comprehensively bound to you is dirtified, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, and so is sullied, right? And so, right. but like they've got this mental block where they're kind of like, no, this is bad, yeah. right? And so there's a lot of things in Christian life and in human existence where there is a version of it that is beautiful and good. Right. I was and just all the rest say. have a taboo and that's, it's supposed to be that way. But then when you meet the real thing, it will feel weird. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was just going to say. It was like it, with, with a lot of these things, like we talked about in, in their podcast that was, should Christians drink? It was like, there's some of these things that can be good and can be bad. Like, like for instance, idols and like sex and like alcohol and like, mm-hmm. and you're like, they always thought that it was just all black and white. Either it's good or it's bad. And that's probably how a lot of people yeah. feel about things. Yeah. And, and it turns out that that's a really immature way to look at things because, and, 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 and when I say immature, I don't mean bad. I just mean, that's what you have to believe first. And it's like right. an absolute, it's like an absolute, which is funny because I, I love Star Wars. And at some point, I think Yoda says to Anakin that only Siths deal in absolutes, like right. that you can't deal in absolutes. You have to look at things comprehensively and compl- in, in their complex complexity. And so I, right. I love Star Yeah, which I, that's one of my least favorite lines in Star Wars. Really? Because, <laughs> well, because it's an absolute, right? Yeah, that's true. Like, <laughs> yeah. Only Siths. Mm-hmm. Deal in absolutes, which, which is that cool. was, but that was the problem with the with the light side, and that we don't have to go into it. But they were like, they were dealing in absolutes, and they weren't trying to bring balance to the force, which was yeah. the ultimate downfall yeah. of the Republic. Yeah, no, I no, I agree. I agree. so I, obviously, like Star Wars is profoundly Buddhist in its spirituality until yeah. it got all materialistic with the chlorum, chloro whatevers God. and. Midichlorians, yeah. Midichlorians, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was studying chloramines last night and their effect on water purity. And so I I messed up. So anyway, (laughs) yeah, I mean, like it's it's kind of Buddhist because part of Buddhism is um, holding things in balance. Yeah. Right. That's the idea of the yin and the yang, which I'm not even sure that's a Buddhist symbol. It it may be a different a different Uh, Eastern religion, but like, but all these religions, but that's also but the the Greek word sophrosyne was was one of the old Greek virtues, which had to do with holding things rightly in balance. Mm-hmm. And um, prudence is the Christian virtue, which is not, which is which is basically holding things in their proper proportion, which is yeah. similar, right? Right. So so in that yeah, and that is all part of maturity. And I, I do think a lot of people go through a, either a cynical phase where they don't believe anything is right or wrong. But then usually when people get morally serious, they get black and white at least for a while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's actually I think developmentally necessary. Right. If you don't get all black and white at some point, um, then it's unlikely you're going to have any backbone when mm-hmm. you get nuanced. Mm-hmm. Most people who get nuanced in their ethics, if they even get to that point of maturity, they get wishy-washy. Mm-hmm. They don't really stand up and say, look, no, no, we're here we're actually losing the proper principle mm-hmm. and purpose of our lives. And so I think the black and white face is important. But that's why Galatians says, right, the law that God gave was like a tutor that led you to Christ, hmm. right? And so as a, as a spiritual child, the law was necessary for you to say, this is right, this is wrong, until Christ came and you could grow up into the law of love mm-hmm. and you could understand why you were doing things, right? There's a section in my book, a Substance, on stewardship, which basically where I argue laws are by definition limiting, like whenever you make yeah. policies in your company, right. you're you're like keeping bad employees from being worse, but yeah. you're keeping good employees from being great, right? Mm-hmm. So it was like um, some years ago, there was this thing like the customer is always right. 
right? <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. basically customers could just basically complain about anything. Right. And employees would just give you free stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. What you wanted was reasonable employees that would listen to consumers and customers. Right. And when the customer had a real like meaningful complaint, they would make it right proportionately to what that would mean. Right. Right. And that's what you need. But if you have a policy that says we don't give stuff away to consumers or the customer's always right, you get bull crap. Yeah. Because black and white doesn't work in life because right. you have to have prudence. Right. Yeah. So, and so I think that for some of these things, we start out black and white, but then we have to come to prudence. And I think that that's maturity, you know? Right. So, so then back to the image of God, I guess when it, when it comes to, to understanding God as the ultimate idol, then would that, would that be how we look at it as we're no, we, like many no, we idols? Are the ultimate idol. We're the ultimate idols. Yeah. Because an idol is a representation of something uh, else. Yeah. 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 Okay. Right. So God is the ultimate thing. Sure. We are the representation of him. Yeah. He's the okay. one who has total dominion. We are taking dominion on his behalf. So uh, an idol is always a subsidiary thing. It's yeah. not the thing. It's not the thing. Right. So I, I've heard some people talk about the Old Testament being made in the image of God, be like the shadow. They talk about like the shadow. Is that a word that's used in Hebrew to explain no. the image of God? No. 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 And I'm not saying that's totally wrong. That sounds like it's from Jungian psychology more than it's from scripture. Yeah. But we can move on to, do you want to move on to the scripture's other examples? Yeah. So, okay. So the next example that comes up in scripture um, that, well, that I'm going to use is, is a likeness or like a statue. Okay. So, so a, and you're like, well, how's that different? Isn't an idol a likeness and statue? Yes. But this is an imperial metaphor rather than a religious one. So okay. like a king will make a statue and put it up in a place and say, this is an extension of my presence. I rule here. Right? And you can tell because this, yeah. right. And Nebuchadnezzar yeah. is the is the clear biblical example. He makes a yeah. 90 foot statue, tells everybody to bow down to it. And instead of Meshach and Abednego won't do it. Right. And he doesn't go, well, it's just a statue. Yeah. No, he gets super pissed and throws <laughs> him in the fire because right. the statue represents his imperial authority. It is his yeah. presence in the dominion. And is so, that, a, so a statue stands for the dominion of the king. Is that some sort of like metaphor also in some essence of like Nebuchadnezzar and being like, it's like a metaphor and allegory of Nebuchadnezzar as God. And like, if you don't bow to the statue of God, then you're going to be thrown into the fire of hell. Um, it's hard to know exactly how far to take it because, yeah, because Daniel is a apocalyptic book. Okay. So there's all this like end times prophecy. That's really yeah. weird in Daniel. So Daniel is structured as an apocalyptic book mm. and Nebuchadnezzar was referred to as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And in the passage in question in Daniel three, it actually says men of all tribes and tongues and nations bowed down to the statue because mm -hmm. the officials of King Nebuchadnezzar had come from all nations. That is all nations in the quote known world because he'd conquered so much mm -hmm. and brought nobles from everywhere. So when people bowed down to his statue, people from every tribe, quote, every tribe, tongue and nation were doing so. Now that's not literally true, but it's, right. it's functionally true. Right. So, so you kind of go like, oh, wait, but God is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And right. well, but wait, he he is the king over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So Nebuchadnezzar mm -hmm. stands the most in the place of God as anybody ever, hmm. at least before him. Yeah. And then in the book of Daniel, there's this place where Nebuchadnezzar is like, I am the king of kings and Lord of lords. And then he gets strung, struck dumb as a cow for seven years. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because God's like, yeah. no, you, no, you actually aren't. Yeah. Right. 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 And so- um, so in some sense, I think there is a parallel, but I don't, but because the son of man rescues them from the fire and mm -hmm. the wrath of the king is wrong, I think that the metaphor 
like has i don't think that that's the metaphor we're looking for i think what it is is they don't bow to the false image and then they're thrown into the fire of man's wrath Mm -hmm. and in the fire is the image or someone who quote looks like or is in the likeness of the son of man right Mm -hmm. and then later in daniel we get a prophecy where one like a son of man that is someone made in the image of god comes as the king and kings of lord of lords on the clouds that Mm -hmm. is we know later yeah. the Jesus the Christ. Right. So I think we're supposed to understand it is Jesus the Christ in the in the furnace overruling at, in the likeness of man, mm-hmm. the one who thinks that he is the one who has the true dominion of the gods. Mm-hmm. And instead, Jesus shows up in the inside the fire, inside the suffering of his people, and delivers them, and he, because he bears the image of the dominion of the gods, right? That, right, which is a human image. Yeah. So, okay. So the, obviously there's differences between God and then the image of God. Like it, we're, we are the idol, we're the image of God and there's right. differences between the real thing and then right. the created thing. And so what are some right. of the main differences between these two things? Well, the one stands for the other. It isn't the thing itself, right? Yeah. So we aren't literally the presence of God, yeah. but we are the, we are the established like we stand for the presence of God. And in that sense, we're the presence of God, right? Yeah. So, um, okay. So the last two metaphors are the image graven on like coins, which makes things yeah. official and show right. that they belong to the emperor. So right. Jesus says, they said, Jesus, should we, should we pay taxes? And he says, uh, get the coin whose image is on it, whose inscription, right? Right. So image, he doesn't use the word likeness. He uses the word image. And then he uses the word inscription because there's always writing on coins too, right? Yeah. And, and they say, well, Caesar's like, well, then give it to him because it's his, right? Which means <laughs> he has some claim even on his representations far away, right? <laughs> and so yeah. then he says, so now give yourself to God, right? And so he says, give to Caesar what Caesar's and give to God what's God's. The context there is where the image is, right? The image of Caesar's on the coin. So that goes to Caesar. But then mm-hmm. what image, what's, what's God's image? on? Well, it's you. Right. right. And so and Jesus God's terms, writing is on us. Is that God, it, like the, the, the law is written on our hearts, it says, right? Yes. Yes. You could, yeah, you could easily make that parallel too. Right. 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 Yeah. And I think that's correct. Right. And then the last one is a son or a child, right? It says in Genesis 5, 1 and 2 that Adam and Eve yeah. had a son in his image, in Adam's image and in his likeness. Yeah. Right. And so Seth, and this says that they named Seth. So Seth, the son, is the more perfect image. Right. He is in the image and likeness of his father. And that's meant to, to be like a personal presence that ultimately we believe mm-hmm. Seth would be like Adam. Mm-hmm. And therefore, Seth, wherever Seth was, he would be in the dominion of his father. So mm-hmm. those are the four ones that are we know are in scripture. They are emphasized in scripture. And we know that those four things, you can think of them as together kind of meaning what God is getting at as the image of light and likeness. So mm-hmm. when God says we're made in his image and likeness, you can think of those metaphors, idol, likeness or mm-hmm. statue, image and inscription and son. Mm-hmm. The one that is the closest in the text of scripture itself is son mm-hmm. in Genesis five. Yeah. And so I think, and then as you get into the new Testament and then you have the coming of Jesus, the Christ, right? Obviously yeah. the metaphor of the son becomes by far the most important. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's start then, I guess with this next question, let's start, let's split this up into two sections. Cause when I'm asking about what the difference of, uh, between God and the image of God is mm-hmm. in we need to probably start with what is the difference before the fall and then what is the difference after the fall? Because it feels like sin manipulates everything. And we're, we're going to do the next episode will be an entire podcast is how, how has the fall affected our anthropology. But I think let's start with before the fall, 
how did God intend to create us in his image and how was that supposed to play itself out? Which wasn't a question I had written down. Right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So it, oh man, it still depends on kind of what you mean by how, but generally speaking in the history of the church, what's happened is when people say, okay, if we're made in God's image, right. Then, um, Okay, so there's two things you mean by how. One is literally how did he make the human beings? As in, we look at the at the um, the passage in Genesis two, and then we can or can choose not to debate what we think we know about natural history and how those two go together, right? So there's yeah. the how, like literally, how did he do the forming? Like how did the potter work at the wheel, so to speak? Mm. But then secondly, there's the how that is in what ways are we like God, and in what ways are we not like God? Yes. Which is kind Let's, of the analytical way to look at it. Yeah. 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 How, in what ways are we like God and what ways are we not like God before? I, th- I would think that you'd have to split it up to before like pre-fall and post-fall, right? Yeah. In a, in a way, I think that's true. Yeah. Um, so there's, uh, yeah. So generally speaking, there's two ways to look at this. So for most of Christian history, people have said, in what ways are we as human persons um, like God in the sense that we are, um, we have like the right faculties to be like God. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, um, for, for example, one of the ways people have talked about this is the difference between communicable and incommunicable attributes of God, right? Like there's some right. ways God, it, we could be like God and other ways we can't. So God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. He knows everything. He's all powerful. We're none of those things, right? Mm-hmm. But God is creative, just, good, right? And mm-hmm. we can be those things. Mm-hmm. Right. So in some ways, it's people have said we are created with to be able to embody God's communicable attributes. But then it's this thing is, okay, wait, but that's really not a faculty that we have. Like to say that we have the ability to be creative. Right. What does that mean? Does that mean that we have brains that work or that we have like reason or whatever? And so that. Well, I think we're going to do a podcast with Michael Matheson Miller, and I think he's, yeah. he'll get into those. Um, and I could get into those in another podcast. But that list is really contentious because mm-hmm. um, for two reasons. One is sometimes people get too narrow and they say it's just reason, hmm. right? Because they'll say, well, how are we different from the animals is how they de- is how they come to the conclusion. How are we different from the animals, right? And they say, well, memory, reason, like, but generally speaking, it's intelligence and reason is what they think. That's probably some, way too narrow. Yeah. Consciousness. I mean, right. Self-consciousness, knowing that we exist, provident emotion, that we have emotion, but that we're able to control and develop it. There's a number of things like that. Right. Um, But then there's also the question of what what some theologians have said who were less philosophical and more exegetical. They're more looking at the Bible rather than like trying to work it out mentally. They'll say, okay, well, what, what do, what, what do humans do in the image? Like Mm -hmm. if you, for example, if you work through chapter two, Mm-hmm. of the Bible before the fall, how is God shaping the behavior of human beings so that they will do what he told, he's called them to do? That is to take dominion and, and multiply, right? And um, this is an incomplete list, but I think it would include at least work, mm-hmm. fertility, mm-hmm. Ex- the desire to expand or to go out into new places, like the front, like an idea of like the frontier going out to do God's will where it's not been done yet. Yeah. Um, complementary relationships, especially between the man and the woman. Right. Um, accepting certain relationships of authority as a vote, as opposed to autonomy or tyranny. Yeah. Um, comprehensive relationships like marriage, the first institution where, yeah. where we are, we're bound together in every way rather than just in whatever little ways we choose. Right. Righteousness versus wickedness, right? Like we do it 
in a, a morally beautiful way. Mm-hmm. And then that we do it with dignity. Like every, we bring dignity to things that things are, are brought up into their meaning rather than degradation, where we deny things meanings by how we behave and right. misuse creation. I think those eight things are a good start. Do you think that there's anything to the first job that God had Adam do? Was it naming all the animals? Was that that was the first job that he had him do? Why, why was it that? Why, why did it have to do with naming things? That's just a random question. And Yeah, I think – um, I think Genesis 2 tells us that God has put Adam in the garden to work it first. Yeah. And then the first action we hear God saying, okay, do this, is he brings the animals. And it's, it says, because there's three references to animals. There is like the birds of the air yeah, and then the animals and then the livestock that is like domesticated animals. Yeah. And domesticated animals aren't in that. It's just the other two. So, so Adam isn't just naming the animals he's going to work with, right? As an yeah. agriculturalist, he's naming all the animals of the whole earth, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, that generally speaking, people will say that that is part of like God spoke creation into existence mm-hmm. and Adam sp- had to speak these names into existence. And that there's yeah. this, there's this relationship of dominion taking, right? Yeah. And you see, but, but part of it is like all through the Bible, you see people focused on, on names. Like even now we say the name of Jesus and most modern people have no idea what we mean, what we mean by it. Yeah. But the assumption is, is like, if you know what something is called, you understand it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And th- there's a place in, um, where Jacob wants to know the name of the angel he's wrestling with. And the mm. angel says, why do you want to know my name? And the answer, and the answer is because Jacob wants to control God. Yeah. And well, he thinks and that if he knows his name, he'll be able to do that. There's a re I mean, there's your name, like you say, it's directly tied to who you are in a lot of ways. Like your parents named you, whatever they named you for the sake of like a- Andrew means like strong and manly. And so that right. ended up playing itself out throughout my life. So yeah, that, <laughs> my name, Nick, my name, Nick means Victor. Which yeah. means like like winner, you know? Yeah, yeah, Which is right. Why like, this is why like like all the Greek families just joke that they all have a son named Nick because who doesn't yeah. want to name their kid winner? Right? The winner, yeah, yeah. Like right. the shoes Nike, right? Yeah. Nike shoes that comes from the Greek verb nikao or to be to be the victor or to win. Oh, That's really? What Nike means is to nice. win. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. didn't know that. But yeah, they spelled th- it. They spelled it um, the way it's spelled in Athens around the Temple of Athena, because hmm. Athena was the goddess of war and strategy. And so oh. she was the goddess of victory, right? Yeah, yeah. So she is, if you go to the Acropolis, it's the temple of Athena Nike or yeah. uh, Athena, Nike. the one who brings victory. Yeah, the, the Athena wore Nikes. She yeah. was wearing them. Yeah, I, well, I, I think that that like, I mean that the the image your like who you are being tied to what your name is is important. And yeah, so we go back and it's and it's like, um, so it was to work. It was. Fertility, um, fertility, dominion, expansion. expansion. Yep. Yeah. Is there an order in which these things are to be done? Uh, no, I no, I think it's a complementary relationship. So I think they're all together at the same time. Yeah. Turns out that's how you have to live your life. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, how do you get people to get there? I mean, we talked about this in this podcast a bunch of times is like getting people to stop compartmentalizing things and to start being more comprehensive and complex as human beings and yeah. see, okay. I'm going to try to take dominion over this and, you know, be and try to expand or whatever it is. It's like, like in my own life, how can I do all these things at the same time? Because I think a lot of people just get overwhelmed. They'll be like, well, I can't do all that crap. And I'm, I just, I quit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a simple and a complicated answer. I mean, like this, this is why like Jordan Peterson wrote 12 rules for life. Cause she's right. like trying to help people like take their own life seriously and sort themselves out. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I agree. I mean, I think that, I think the reason why, 
a lot of younger people. I mean, Meg Jay, I think it was Meg Jay who wrote the the, the decisive decade about people's twenties. Yeah, that like th- that decade sets you up for the whole rest of your life. That's a decade you're supposed to mature in certain ways that are incredibly key for the rest of your life. Sure. And a, a big part of it is to embrace this kind of life that like your life is holistic, it's comprehensive, it includes all these things, but mainly it includes responsibilities. You have to grow up into the strengths to do them, which means you have to understand who you are, which. It helps if you understand like your wounds and problems that right. are going to inhibit you as you go and start to heal and all that kind of stuff. And right. the problem is that's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, it's just terrifying. Yeah. And, but it's also like, it's also supposed to be like, like really joyful. Like, and, and I think a good metaphor for this is like getting married. Yeah. Right. Like getting married to anybody who has any sense and understands what marriage is, is terrifying, but it should also be incredibly joyful. Yeah. Right. You know, and you're like, because, because, and, and a lot of it is because you're growing up. Like I mean, you're becoming more mature. It's the same as as like becoming a Christian. In in a lot of ways, it should be terrifying, mm-hmm. and in a lot of ways, it should be joyful because right. there's because you have you no know. idea what you're getting into because you yeah. know it's comprehensive. It's everything you're giving yeah. your. I mean, some people say I yeah. gave my life to Christ. Yes, and we right. say that like it's not this cataclysmic crazy thing. Like you literally gave your life. Yeah. Right. To Christ. Yeah. You know. But yeah. I think once it, then what happens is you do that. So, but I don't think it's, it is complicated. And in that sense, it can be dizzying. Hmm. But part of the issue is, is that that's also kind of like where the glory is, right? Like once you begin to realize there's, there's two things that kind of drive this and why people want to avoid it. The first is complexity. It just seems really complicated, hmm. but that comp and that c- complexity can lead people to anxiety. But the thing is, is it's also the complexity that can lead you to a sense of God's glory. Yeah. And like, you got to choose which one you're going to let yourself psychologically live in. You could say, oh, God is this good. He has yeah. this like, like multifaceted plan. It's beautiful, right? Ephesians 3 says that one of the great beauties of Christ is that it's the multifaceted wisdom, right? It's the, mm-hmm. it's complicated. It has many parts to it. And mm-hmm. as you begin to see it, you begin to go, oh, this is incredible. Yeah. And so the complexity is a big problem. But the second big problem is responsibility. Like yeah. you're the vice regent of God. Right. Like you're put on earth to be the idol or the image or the or the son or daughter of God to mm-hmm. take dominion on his behalf in the world. And you're like, crap, I don't want my life to mean that much. Yeah. That's way <laughs> right. too much meaning. Right. Like people people joke around and they, they talk all kinds of rot about wanting their life to be meaningful and significant and full of purpose. Yeah. They have no idea what they mean. Right. Yeah. yeah. When, when you become a Christian, you really realize what that means to be bathed in the image of God. You're like, oh crap, I didn't want this much responsibility. I didn't want yeah. this much meaning and purpose. Right. I just right? wanted and to get like a car and like a right. house, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. yeah. And so, or they, they just didn't want to be nihilists and feel like their life is yeah. meaningless. You know, they wanted to like, right. I don't know. So, Do so I think that sense of responsibility when it comes crashing down can either produce one of two, it can either produce anger because you don't want to take that much responsibility. I mean, well, I, I, I was going to say earlier too. I, the the complexity I think also produces humility, and for for yeah. people as well that like I think about how easy it is to think that if I can compartmentalize something away from the whole comprehensive anthropology of human living, if I can compartmentalize like one piece of that and and like try to be an expert on that, then then I can feel like I know a lot. I can feel like I know everything yeah. about this thing, rather than being like. Well, if I compartmentalize it, I'm not going to understand it in relation to all the other attributes of how God created me to be. Right. So it, it, it right. needs to it, it produces humility to be like, I got to figure all these things out. And that means that I'm way smaller than I actually thought that I was. And I'm not as smart as I thought that I was. But yeah, there's this verse in the Bible that says that the statutes of the Lord or God's commandments, right, or what yeah. he says in scripture, make the simple wise. 
And you're like, yeah. oh, that's cute. So, Cause there are dumb people. I mean, not me, but there <laughs> yeah. are dumb people. Right. Everybody reads those that. People, says that yeah. Right. And, and then he's like, and they go, those people, when they read this, if they just do what it says, it'll be like, they're smart and they get it. Right. Yeah. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to get it. Right? right. And then you begin to realize like, oh, wait, I'm not going to get it. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> like I'm Maybe. never like, like I will keep trying to learn more. I want to grow in wisdom. Right. Cause right. Solomon is right. The first chapters of Proverbs go do sell anything to get wisdom, do anything you can to get more wisdom. But for most of us at the same time, we're also immature in certain ways and need the law. Right. Not because we were under it, so to speak, but because we need its simplified direction. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So listen, until you get this sorted out, don't commit adultery. Let me give you the answer on this relationship. (laughs) Right. Don't commit adultery. Right. Yeah. There's that there's a whole thing like with young there is some aspect of like, especially with I mean, with young believers, it's like, okay. You know, you might not understand why you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, but like, just don't do it yet. And you're going to like figure it out as you grow in your faith. But like, just don't do it because that's going to distort your V. That's going to distort how you figure out if you're supposed to do it or not. The minute you do something, you're prone to justify it. Yeah. So you're, it's really hard to do something and then Mm -hmm. simultaneously learn why it's really bad. Yeah. Right. You know, because you're going to be like, oh, well, what's a big deal? I mean, because I did it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, but there's this place in John seven. I never tire of quoting where Jesus says, do what I say. And then you'll see or find out if what I say is from God. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. like figuring out why God teaches something, why it's mm-hmm. wise, why it works in real human life mm-hmm. co- comes best from just obeying. Well, this is the thing that you mentioned in your sermon that I thought was one of my favorite parts is that you said that, you know, there's a reason why we don't have babies and just hand them basically like a how to be a baby and grow up into an adult manuscript. And then they like read through it and they grow up and they and they become an adult. There's they 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 become a a human being and a person and mature through imitation because and and I read through the Bible and the way that Paul and I think Peter and some of the other apostles refer to believers, especially new believers, is as like baby, like baby. I'm going to give you milk right. because you can't handle the meat, basically. And so right. I think you're, but you're going to grow up into it, right? You're going to grow up into it. And so there's something to that, because I think that a lot of times, especially in high point in our like very academic high point and in Madison, I think people think that if I read enough books and if I, and it's not like books are bad or anything like that, but if I read enough books and I watch enough videos and I try to figure out all these biblical concepts, then I'll be able to be a, a good comprehensive Christian. And I just think that's a bunch of BS as far as I'm concerned. I think that those things are all really, really good, but mm-hmm. I think that you got to find somebody or a group of people that you can try to mimic and become like them in a personal relationship. I, I, I think that your discipleship's only going to go as far as you take it, especially here in, in, in Madison. Yeah. I don't know. What you- yeah. So I, I think it is important for people to understand. Cause I, I think, so in scripture, like we're, we are given Jesus, the Christ as the son of God incarnate, who mm-hmm. is not just the image of the invisible God, the one who as the image of man is the perfect representation communication of what God is like. The reverse is also true. He's also the perfect representation of humanity. So we can yeah. know what humans are supposed to be like so that we have a perfect person to imitate. Yeah. Because human beings learn through imitation more than anything else. I mean, right. I, I think one of the best, one of the, one really good way to understand this is in sports. 
like because you like you watch somebody do something you're like okay and you you see them do it and you're like okay that's how you do it but that's true like in cooking and right. fishing and in so many things where like you could explain it but being mentored in the thing is different yeah and i found that to be the case in like mechanics like trying to fix engines or fishing or scuba diving there's so many things where like i could read it but being mentored in it was another level it feels was like more most of human. the trades like trade yeah. type of jobs are are very are just like that and yeah, yeah and I i'm i'm an extremely highly conceptual person yeah. so like i'm the sort of person that can read something and then do it and yeah. i've done that in tons of things in my life right. but it i mean like paul says this he's i mean like he just says to the to the in the concrete like just like i urge you to imitate me yeah like that's right and in ezekiel when god punishes his adulterous bride he's like one of the reasons i'm doing this is so that quote all women will take notice in warning and not imitate you yeah because we just tend to fall into imitating people who we think are compelling yeah which is why christianity wasn't founded on the concept of like being a christian th- through the church we are christians in the church and we are yeah. part of the church but like we're supposed to figure out our faith in discipleship that is within the church. There are smaller like one-on-one relationships and one right. which people impart to each other very directly through imitation right. and teaching right. the faith. And so yeah. that's one of the reasons why like discipleship is so important, right? Like you have people in your life, like just a few who yeah. you have chosen to imitate. You're like, this person is worth imitating. I am going right. to imitate them. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes humility from the end of the, of the person that, um, who's going to imitate the other person to say like, I think you have to come to a place mentally that you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. So like, I have to find somebody that I can imitate and try to figure this whole thing out. And yeah. that's going to take humility. And I mean, right. I and, imi- and imitation doesn't just show you what to do. The relationship itself drives you forward. So right. for example, in yeah. uh, Hebrews six twelve, it says, we don't want you to become lazy but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherited what was promised. So like in that context, what what the writer is saying is by, by imitating somebody great, a hero, it doesn't just teach you what to do. It makes a hero out of you. It makes you want to pursue something great, do something great and not be lazy. right? Right. And that's why it says later in the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. That is like Paul, Timothy, these like itinerant great apostles who are at risk of martyrdom all the time. Like think about who preached Jesus to you and consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Now that's obviously dangerous because sometimes Christian leaders fall and that can be super demoralizing if you look to them and imitate them too much. Right. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, those people also have the capacity to inspire you greatly. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think like if, if we're trying to – so we kind of explain how that can play itself out through the, the image of God and right. being the expression of God. Because I think that being yeah. the image of God is being the expression of God. There's yeah. many different ways that that can be played out. And that's kind of just like what it, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do you express the right. image of God? But right. It's to do everything humans do in a godly way, right? And right. that is – and then I think people understand that you're going to feel – like that's dizzying and terrifying because of how complex it is and how much responsibility that brings into your life. Right. Exactly. But instead of having a lot of anxiety and anger about it, you could re- recognize the glory and purpose that it brings to your life and why that's such a good gift. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, well, I mean, and so what are other ways that it can be expressed? Like what are other ways that we can express this? Obviously we do express it through 
everything that we do, but specifically in trying to grow in maturity in becoming more like Christ and more like the image that God created us to be. How should yeah. we, what's the, what's the formula here? Yeah. In some ways, the, like the parts of doing the image of God, like what makes up human life is laid out in the early chapters of Genesis in the old Testament. But by the time you get to the new Testament, I think the assumption is we know what those are. We know mm-hmm. what human beings do in the world to take dominion. The yeah. problem is, is the quality ethically by which they do it. Mm-hmm. A, they do it idolatrously, idolatrously. They're not pointing back to God with it. Yeah. So our presence as God's idol, so to speak, isn't pointing people to worship him. Yeah. Right. Right. It, like we're, we're doing it. We're not connected to, to him. And so yeah. we don't lead people to his presence. Right. So there's the theological, spiritual nature of it. We're also not connected to him. Right. His spiritual, like it was believed that with idols, God's, the God's spiritual presence was in the idol. Right. Well, God has explicitly said in Christ that his spirit will be in us. Right. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that we intentionally seek to combine our conscience in real intimate union with the spirit of God so that we are with the spirit of God is dwelling within us in a way that those coming to us who see us as a physical representation know that we are filled with the spirit. Right. How that are we you are supposed temples to do that? That's, because people are going to ask, they're going to wonder yeah, how you how the, another set of podcasts. <laughs> right. Yeah. I know. Yeah. yeah. And, which I would love, which I would love to do. And right. I think it is part of the image of God. One of the sermons I'm going to preach is like, what are we capable of? Yeah. And that includes issues of like, and what, how, how are we capable of being in union with God himself? Well, so for for the, for the outline, because even when you were talking about the image of God in the beginning, I was thinking like being the image of God gives, is in a lot of ways giving us the, we have the capacity to have Christ live within us to be that. And then that is how we are expressed through Christ in us. So we're in a lot of ways, like a, like a hollow vessel that's waiting for Christ to be imputed into us until we become Christians. And okay. Then- so I, so I, one of the things that I'm displeased with in some of the metaphors um, charismatic Christians use yeah. is this idea of emptying because it's both a really good and yeah. really bad metaphor, right? Yeah. So it's a really good metaphor in terms of wi- our will that is opposed to God. Mm-hmm. All of our will that is opposed to God needs to get emptied out. And we need to be filled with the will of God, pointing us towards what he wants us to be and do. Yeah. But um, there's also an infantilizing metaphor there where like we don't become mature adults. We're like children just constantly just receiving from the father. Hmm. As opposed to this idea that God is raising us up into adult sons and daughters who are his stewards, which is the main metaphor Jesus uses. Right. What's a steward? A steward is someone who doesn't need the master to be present. The master's yeah. already present in them because they yeah. know what the master wants. They've yeah. served him for years. They get it. And it's their job to do on his behalf what he would want done in his own property. Right. 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 And so I think sometimes when we talk about, quote, emptying ourselves, it yeah. takes away this drive of God, especially in the New Testament, where Jesus wants to bring us to maturity. Yeah. And that's what the New Testament calls godliness or human beings functioning in the image of God well. Mm-hmm. And in some capacity, it's like you're never going to be able to fully empty yourself because you like because of the fall and because of sin, you're always going to have this the that in your system. You're not going to be able to empty that out completely. And so you have to then find ways to combat it with the teachings of Christ that you already know. Right. Like yeah. you can't empty that all out. It's, 
Yeah, I, I think it's true that in the New Testament, it's clear that what, what the Bible calls the flesh or indwelling sin yeah. is not something that can be totally eradicated because of the nature of the right. curse and what we right. sometimes call original sin, how the curse affects us in our being. Mm-hmm. However, its power over us can be profoundly diminished. Yeah. And I think that sometimes, if you like, if you're a reformed Christian, you have a really big sense of the depravity of man. Oftentimes, we don't pay attention to how much overcoming of that Jesus talks about in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And then, if we are focused on the overcoming, sometimes we don't talk about how much. It, so, for for example, people who've experienced trauma psychologically, yeah, like it's going to be with them the rest of their life, as far as we know right now, right? Yeah. But right. you can in- overcome it incredibly. Right. To where like you'll notice the anxiety is coming up, but you're in the driver's seat still. Like you yeah. really are healed. You don't, you aren't living in the past anymore. Right. Yeah. You are free. Right. Right. right? And I, th- I think that's something similar would be true of the flesh that like yeah. the fl- if you give yourself into the flesh, the flesh will turn and dominate you. Yeah. But if you're constantly killing the flesh and pursuing Christ, you can be where like the, the flesh is still always yelping in the background, like one of those stupid little dogs no one should ever buy. <laughs> and you just kick it. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's a great metaphor. You just kick the the yelping dog yeah. that nobody should have bought. Yeah, well, I think that there's something to. I, I well, should I should say I actually do like a lot of those little dogs when they're not yeah. yippers. You know, yeah. those I ones, like a the, little affectionate dog who likes yeah. to play. But yeah. you know, the ones that are like annoying, and, and they, you're like, yeah. why do you exist? Yeah, right? like what was the point of buying that? Right. Yeah, that yeah, I get. I no, that makes sense to me. They're like, yeah, I own this house, and you're like, you weigh two pounds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't own anything. Yeah, um, I think yeah, I think there's something to like that having the the flesh, basically. The flesh is always going to be there, but the question is whether the flesh is going to control you or you're going to control your flesh and, right. or like, are you going to put it to death every time that it starts to creep its way up in, right. into your consciousness? Right. The killing of the flesh is the only violent, profoundly violent metaphor in the New Testament that I know of that we are encouraged to do. Yeah. The only place where Jesus says, are you willing to kill for me? It's not mm-hmm. our enemies. It's not our right. neighbors. It's not, it's none of those things. The only place where Jesus says, I want you to kill for me is your own indwelling sin. Yeah. It's like yourself. It's like your, your own. Yeah. The your part of you that's going to kill you. Right. Like you literally yeah. are at war with a certain part of yourself indwelling sin and it has to die. Yeah. You right. know? Oh, I think we'll talk about that more in, in the next one about the, how the fall affected us. But I think, yeah, I'm going to move in. I, we could do, a, I think we should do a four, like a four part series on indwelling sin because there's a lot yeah. in that because there's also all these issues of like your psychological wounds and how they're bound up with your indwelling, yes. with your besetting sins, yeah. which is connected to your indwelling sins and like separating indwelling sin from besetting sin, like the sin you keep falling into from yeah. indwelling sin as a condition. And then in the besetting <laughs> yeah. sin, looking at how your wounds that need to be healed are feeding in your besetting sin and how indwelling sin is feeding into besetting sin. Otherwise what you do is you try to kill your wounds yeah, and you become brutal against yourself and treat yourself like you're worthless. And it's a really terrible way to grow in Christ. But that's what a lot of Protestant Christians are doing when they're trying to kill sin is they're trying to kill their wounds, which never is going to work. So we, it'd be great to do a little, it's like a sub series on that. about like, how do you kill sin and heal wounds? Yeah, and you not have to confuse the two because it's like walking through a right. battlefield and shooting your own people to death and then putting <laughs> the enemy that's still alive on stretchers to be taken back to be healed and, by your right. people. Yes. When it should be the other way around. I'm not saying yes. actually people should do that in war that they should shoot injured. But like right. if your job is to kill <laughs> the enemy, right? You know, it's, it's kind of like you shoot, you're shooting your own people and you're giving comfort to the enemy. And that's what a lot of Christians yeah. do. And they don't even realize they're doing it. Well, I think I think, and it's especially why younger Christian men aren't getting free of pornography addictions. Yes, 
Totally. And I think apart from that also is, is that even before that is like trying to recognize sin, it feels like it's almost like impossible for young people to recognize their sin. I go, we, you know, it's, because it is always aping on something good. Well, and because like right. you said, it's far more complex than we even think. There's like different types of sin and how you're a victim of sin, you're a perpetrator of sin, and how do you deal with that and yeah. all these different things. And it's very complex. So we should do a whole mini series on sin because yeah. people don't talk about it enough. We're not going to, if we're talking about the world and the Lord Jesus, we're not going to run out of material. It looks like. No, I don't think we'll run out of material. <laughs> okay. So let's go back to what we're doing now and how we can do it. And I think that that's why the New Testament focuses on godliness or holiness. Yeah. That when the New Testament talks about godliness or holiness, that it's getting at this idea of like the rehabilitation of the image of God. Mm-hmm. That is because the problem is that we're sons and daughters of God. We're created to be his sons and daughters mm-hmm. and we don't look like the father at all. Right. And then we can't really do the dominion. We can't bring his dominion into the world and mm-hmm. we're not bringing up godly offspring and fertility. Right. Like the whole thing is blown apart unless right. we become, quote, godly like the Lord who made us. Right. 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 And so godliness becomes the the primary function of the New Testament. How does a human mm-hmm. being broken in sin, living under the curse, affected by worldliness in its cultures, how do how does that person start to image God again? Truly. Yeah. They're in the image of God, but they're not doing it. Yeah. And they aren't in their character and being, right? In their in their nature, they're in the image of God. That can't be taken away. But in their being, how they are formed in their nature, they aren't in the image of God. And yeah. in their doing, their praxis, their action, they're not imaging God. Right. And the purpose of the death and resurrection of Jesus is to reset that, yeah. to redeem us, not just from the sinking ship of sin and damnation, but to bring us back into our ultimate purpose. Yeah. Like, like when you get Christians who get saved and they still don't really have much purpose, this is, I, this is one thing they don't understand. They're like, yeah, I got saved from hell. And the answer is, yeah, but what were you saved for? For, right. Yeah. Right. What were you saved to? Right. Right. And the answer is to image God in creation. Right. There's always a movement. Yeah. You can't, you can't get saved from something and then, and then not move away from that thing or like not move at all. It's just like the the stagnation. It doesn't, I don't, well, I, cause I wanted to ask in, in trying to like lead into the next podcast is that when we understand our image, the, the image of God and our, us being the image of God and being the idols, Whatever, you know that. Yeah. How then in the fall, leading up to the fall, like what were some of the things that were enticing Adam and Eve to fall? Because I think that there's probably a, a a parallel that we can draw to us now when we forget that we are made in the image of God and we're enticed into sin. And yeah. What's the parallels that we can draw between Adam and Eve and us so that we can lead into this is how we could talk about now. This is how they fell. And then part two will be what happened because they fell. Yeah. Yeah. So, man, I hate to get into this without getting into it. But I mean, one of the short answers is because I probably because I'd like to talk about the, the issue of godliness a little bit because I, I think that's the big takeaway for people. But yeah. the short answer is this. Notice what Satan says to the woman. He says, if you eat the fruit, you will be what? You'll be blank God. You'll be like. Yeah. You'll be like. Do you see it's the yeah. same language? Yeah. Likeness, like you'll be like God. You'll yeah. be like, right. So what so like people sometimes we talk about how um heresies are usually built on logical fallacies, right? 
So hmm. this is the logical fallacy of equivocation, using one word to mean two things, mm-hmm. you know, lumping meaning together when you really, the distinction, everything is in the distinction, right? right. So Satan is saying, look, you want to be like God, eat the knowledge of the good and e- uh, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And then you'll be like him. That is, you'll know what he knows. You'll yeah. be like him. That was not what God meant by be like me, right. by being made in my likeness, right? God was going to shepherd them into that. But that wasn't the point. The point wasn't that them to to try to take over for him. The point was for them to be his dominion takers. They had to be his. It's like they're going to run the business. The opposite of that. Right. Yeah. Right. No, it it, it was like God wasn't preparing them to run the business after he died or something like that. It it was. Yeah. (laughs) But I think that's interesting. It's like in the be like God. And in a lot of ways, if Eve would have picked up on that and if we would pick up on it when we hear Satan say things like that to us, um, like in some way, the combat can be like, I already am like God, but not in the way that Satan's talking about. Right. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And part of it is like humans are always unhappy with how much God has given us to do what he's demanded of us. Right. So like sometimes we talk about how like um, talk about we talk about in Genesis two like of male headship that the that the man is given certain authority in creation and the woman is his quote helper. Right. And without getting into that language, which I'm sure we'll get into it in the next podcast or something or the third podcast. Yeah. Um, the, the first person who fails to take authority mm-hmm. and dominion in Genesis three isn't the man. Who doesn't step in and keep his wife from eating the fruit? It's the woman, right? Satan. So the question is, why does Satan come as a snake? Is it just because like, like um, evolutionary primates are scared of snakes, and so Satan came as a snake to scare Eve into complying? And the answer is, of course not, because, because yeah, that, I mean, I, I think that's ridiculous. Okay, and, yeah. and for how how well Jordan Peterson interprets the early chapters of Genesis metaphorically. I think this is a profound oversight. I think he's so bound into the evolutionary framework. Yeah. He doesn't give enough of to the Jungian framework. I mean, if you're going to interpret it psychologically, do it the whole way. Yeah. 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 Because, because <laughs> Eve is clearly not afraid of the snake. Yeah. There's, there is no clear evidence. There's no evidence of fear. But here's what the snake is. Because she would have ran away. She would have right. yeah, yeah, yeah. been like, oh, what is this? And, the, and if, <laughs> if the snake's terrifying, why would she believe it? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. She listens to and is taught by and and does what the snake yeah. tells her to. But here's yeah. the thing. The snake is the very bottom of creation, literally. It slithers along the ground. It's literally the very bottom of creation. And she is in dominion over creation. Mm-hmm. She yes, she's the Azair, the helper of the man. But both of the man and the woman have the job of taking dominion over creation. They plural, man and woman, have dominion over all of creation. So now creation has come and talked to Eve. And is telling her what to do. Yeah. And she well, is the queen over creation. Right. She has dominion and she's listening to the snake. Yeah. Right. Right. And then she eats the fruit and the man doesn't step and say, baby, we're not eating no fruit. <laughs> yeah. Are you crazy? He's like, he's like, I'll eat the fruit too. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's all in. And listen, the whole interpretation that Adam did it out of love, that once Eve fell, Adam he's like, wanted to. I, he fell with her out of nobility. I think that is bull crap. Is that a real thing? Do people yes, actually people think that? People say that all the time. I think Adam, it's the stupidest thing Adam I've ever Sinner. heard. <laughs> yeah. The reason why, one of the reasons why they say that is because I think because a lot of them are men, but, um, <laughs> but, to, but to take their view seriously, because you don't want to just be like, well, the reason you believe that triangles have three sides is because you're a man, you know, like yeah. bulverism is bad. So, but like the, but if you look in Genesis three, it says your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Yeah. Some people take that that the woman will will 
in the state of the fall, the only good that will happen is that the woman will be driven to desire her husband and to, into, into desire his leadership and he will rule over her yeah. because he lovingly entered into the fall with her. Right. I, I just, I think that's a wrong way to interpret both passages because yeah. when, he, when the scripture says your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. One that's parallel to chapter four, which we'll get to in another podcast. That's not what it means, but it's a, but just read the passage. It's a curse. Is that yeah? I was going to say everything in the passage is a curse. There's nothing good in the passage, right? It sounds like a reward for Adam for going into it, loving her, right? Like okay, because you did this, now that's how it is. There's only one good thing in the passage of the curse, the proto euangelion, which is when he says, "The snake will strike your offspring's heel, and he will crush its head." That's the only good news, and it's very cryptic. And it's referring to himself. God's referring to him, right? Himself, yeah. Right. It doesn't have much to do with us. Yeah. Right. right. So anyway, um, yeah. So so you see, like in the fall, right? The the serpent comes as the bottom of creation, and sh- is switching the hierarchical order of authority and dominion taking. And the woman falls for it, and then the man falls for it, and God's like, "What the frick?" Yeah. Like, d- did I not make the order clear here? That's why he yeah. says in the curse, Adam. He literally says, "Because you listened to your wife." It doesn't mean men don't listen to your husbands. Yeah. It meant it, like men, men the, don't listen to your wives. That's right. You said don't right. listen to Sorry, your husbands. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A, yeah. We're trying to be inclusive <laughs> that's here. A, that's a different um, podcast. Yeah, because you're in Minnesota, right? We're just trying to be inclusive. Yeah, I'm in Minnesota. No, but the but the idea is here is not like men don't listen to their wives. Men are, cl- yeah. are supposed. To, I mean, everywhere in the Bible, you see these places where men don't listen to the women in their lives and they get screwed and because get, of it, right? Yeah. Right. The the great example is Abigail and Nabal, right? Where he's just like, mm-hmm. screw this David guy. Who does he think he is? Blah, 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 blah. And Abigail's like you are some kind of idiot. They're going to kill us all. And then like, she yeah. saves everybody's life, right? Like, yeah. But there's numerous examples like that. So you're, you're, it's clear in scripture yeah. that I don't care how patriarchal you think the ancient Hebrews were. It is very clear in scripture. You don't listen to the women in your life. You're stupid, right? right. right. And women are constantly subverting the will of men, like Rebecca with Isaac, like getting Jacob right. to usurp Esau's place. Like that's all woman done, you know? So the, so like the right. Bible is very womanist in this, like women have lots of power. The well, reason and how is, dumb, how compartmentalized you have to make it to, for you to think that like the only ways in which women can be our helper is in the physical ways and like doing the dishes and crap like that. Like that's right. not what that means at all. They, they help us no. in making decisions and, and, Right. It's it's a comprehensive, right? This goes back to the comprehensive relationship, right? It's comprehensive. What what do women do to help us? Everything. A a lot. Yeah. Everything. What do we do to help them? Everything. Yeah. Right. Like what are we in charge of as men in the world to take dominion of? Everything. Everything. Right. Right. That's why God says that's one of the reasons, one one of the object lessons of God having Adam name all the animals is that God already knows it's not good for man to be alone. Right. But he's looking for a helper for the man who is quote suitable. Yeah. That is properly fitted in every way, right? right. And there isn't one. There's yeah. dogs and horses and whatever, but none of them are suitable yeah. to be the Azair, the helper without which man cannot succeed. Right. Right? Right. And so there has to be a woman. There just has to be. So, but right. anyway, what you see is in the eating of the fruit, there is the reversal of authority, not just between the man and the woman. But between- right? the, big, the bigger step in the breach of authority is between the woman and creation. Creation, right? yeah, yeah. Both the man and the woman fail in their dominion taking. Yeah. The creation, Satan uses creation to take dominion over the men and women. And that's never changed. Like in Romans 1, Paul says, listen, you guys, we make idols of animals yeah, and creeping right. things and all this stuff that's in creation. Why are we worshiping right. creation? Creation right. is supposed to worship us as we right. worship God. 
Right. The hierarchy of creation is we are the dominion takers. We are mm-hmm. in the image of God. Why are we worshiping this crap that crawls along the ground? And it's right? the other thing when Paul says, as the created, the the the, the created doesn't ask the creator, "Why did you create me this way?" It, there's, um, it creates the hierarchy between man and God as well. In that, like, right. as as we're not supposed to take creation and make idols out of it. Also, like we shouldn't question how God, as the next step up in our hierarchy, created us. Like, right. does that make sense? The, yeah. 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 And I, I think that, it, and this isn't just ancient peoples, right? Like the more, even in like modern materialism and secularism, what you get is the same worshiping of creation, right? Yeah. Like, like, I mean, this, the, like the, like the fetish, the, the fetish, Fetish, fetishization of sex. Fetishizing. Like Lewis was so right when he's like, what would you think aliens would think if they came <laughs> down and saw like our strip clubs? Like he's like, it'd depends be like on us. what type of aliens. I know. They are. He's, he's like, I mean, can, can you imagine if somebody came out and like slowly revealed a turkey yeah. for yeah. us to eat? Like, if, like we did it with food, like they had an eclair and they like slowly revealed more of it to us. Right. 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 Like people think that we were a little sick, you know? Yeah. But like, if you look at, it's at materialism, like what do we see? Well, there is a worship of power, Putin invading Ukraine. Yeah. There is a worship of money. Right. There is a worship of sex. Like if you look at your, like all the most visceral, earthly, non-virtuous, like materially oriented, that is the stuff that crawls along the ground. Mm-hmm. Like the lower nature of things as opposed got, to truth, justice, hope. Right. God, I got to ask about this because you, you mentioned that the snake crawls around the, uh, along the ground, but isn't that something that happens to him as a result of the fall? The yes. snake is then slithering on the ground. So beforehand, he's not on the, he's not on the ground. I don't know what he looks like. Is he like, do you yeah. remember in, uh, yeah. have you there, seen Monsters, Inc.? Yeah, the purple guy that turns invisible. Oh, yeah. You know, he's got legs. Is that? Do you think that's what he looked? The snake looked like? I don't. I don't know. I mean, it is true that part of the curse is that the snake will be more snake-like. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time, I do think that reading some of the primevalness into how people probably looked at snakes is also warranted. Yeah. Um. So yeah, but no, you're right. That's true. And, and I don't think, I mean, I, in some ways, maybe that took the metaphor too far, but the idea that creation like gets out of order, yeah, that, that yeah, like yeah. a creature tells right. the human and then that subverts the male female yeah. hierarchy, which subverts the, the God human creation yeah. hierarchy right. so that all of dominion taking is disrupted Yeah, with the idea that like, look, I'll give, because the snake says, yeah. I'll give you dominion. Yeah. No. God gives dominion, not right. snakes and not trees. Right. It could have been a gorilla. It doesn't really matter what it was. It's yeah. the, the the sense that it's this is a human being dealing with creation right. and they got it all wrong. Yeah. But but I do think there is something that it's a snake. Yeah. Like, yes, the snake becomes lowlier in the curse. That's true. Yeah. But I do think that there is a reason it's a snake and not a gorilla. I think it's both of those. If it was a gorilla, man, I would have done whatever it told me to do. I'd have been like, I'll eat 10 apple or fruits. I'll do whatever you yeah, tell do you me. Do you eat this. the bark? I'll eat the bark. Yeah, I'll eat the bark. I'll plant a new tree. Uh, yeah. So then then the purpose of it being a snake was that, you, I mean, we think that the snake is is lowly already. And so it's almost like in some ways like comical that yeah. she's going to – it's not comical. But in some ways it's just like you're going to let this lowly thing – Upend yeah. in the entirety of the creation order. Right. And I think the snake is something that can't hurt you. 
That, I mean, that's why I'm unhappy with Jordan Peterson's interpretation and people who interpret it that way. I yeah. don't think the idea here is, is that like, it's the, it's fear. I don't think fear is in there at all. I think the snake has no power other than deception. Yeah. Right. And, and I, well, part of the reason I know this is because I hit puberty at like eight, 17 years old. <laughs> and when you're like five, one in the, like the, ten, the second half of the 10th grade. Yeah you realize you don't have the physical power to make things happen. You have to talk your way. You have to, deception is your only tool. Yeah. Yeah. And listen, I turned some six, five bullies over 200 pounds yeah. in on themselves. Yeah. Like they, like they didn't know what to do because right. I was able to like mess with them mentally. Yeah. And right. I just had to, to survive, you know? Yeah. And like the snake uh, is kind of in the same position. Like he's got to be, and, and it says the serpent was the shrewdest in all of creation. And whether that's, so anyway, I don't want to get too much into that metaphor, but the idea is, is that the reversal of the creation order right. is what happened. Right. And there, I also have some theories about like the that learning in order is as much important as what you learn. Yeah. Which is why I, kids shouldn't have phones at 12. Yes, you know? I agree a billion percent. I think that we try to get everything all. This is the problem with, and this happens a lot in, in young adult groups, is you'll get these people... and these young believers who will be like, they'll read a little bit about Calvinism and they'll be like, I'm, I'm like a five point Calvinist, blah, blah, blah. And they'll talk about how they know everything about Calvinism and they don't know anything about Calvinism um, because you read like a paper by John Piper on desiringgod.com. Not that that's bad, but you don't know anything yeah. about Calvinism by reading one thing. It's a very complex, it's a whole theology basically. Right. So you got to like, you're not going to know it, you know, three months into your, your faith. And I think that. Right. And if you didn't understand the doctrine of God and then the doctrine of sin. <laughs> right. You just, you jump to Calvinism, the whole system, it ends up distorting your understanding, your ability to learn all the other lesser things that are built up into it. Right. Right. And then you end up not appreciating it later on because you probably end up giving up on it because it's too hard to understand. And so by the time you should try to understand it, you don't because you already felt like I already tried to understand that didn't make sense to me. So maybe you lose out. Yeah. And so think about this. You give kids allowances before you give them chores. So they learn about having money and spending it before they learn about work. Right. That's, that's degrading. That degrades yeah, that's their stupid. capacity yeah. to understand the world. People, right. kids learn about sex before they really learn about friendship deeply. Yeah. Right. It's just, right. It just sorts, it's going to distort the view of women the rest of their lives. Right. Right. The order in which you learn things yeah. matters. And so yeah. what happens is when they eat the fruit and they get everything at once, they get all the knowledge, but they don't have wisdom because it, its order was corrupted. And so they don't right. know where anything goes. Right. And so what ends up happening is, is they like, they like know that they can have resentment and kill somebody. Right. But they don't know how to stop it with humility and justice. And so um, it becomes, so like knowledge, like Paul says, right. When I learned the law, it jumped in it. Sin used it as an opportunity and I ended up dead. Right. right? right. Because, because knowledge is, is all wrong mm-hmm. if it's not built correctly in the human heart, which is, so, yeah. so God has an order to creation. And yeah. once Adam and Eve disrupted that by eating the fruit, a different salvation story that was ordered over thousands of years was created that we're still in. Yeah. Where God well, is and you reteaching can, humanity. You can know that there is an order by looking to scripture to figure out where it starts. And in, in, in Proverbs, it says the beginning of wisdom, or maybe not Proverbs and Ecclesiastes or something. The beginning of wisdom and knowledge is the fear of the Lord, right? Is that yeah. That's in one of them. It says that numerous times in, in Proverbs. In Proverbs. And, and so 
if there is if there's an order to it, then there's going to be a beginning, and there's the beginning, and so you go from there, right? So I think I think that that's also that's very important because this this ambi- I feel like there's there's a movement, not a movement, but there's a lot of young people that as that I know that are kind of like Christianity is ambiguous and you can kind of pull and, Oh, I'm interested in this today and I'll figure this out today. And I don't want to talk about that today. And it's like, no, you, you got to start somewhere and then you have to go through the order of, of, mm-hmm. of sanctification and growth. I, I suppose that would be the yeah. best way to say it. Yeah. And you, you should emphasize what the scriptures emphasize, like the stuff that comes up everywhere. Right. is what you should emphasize. Yeah. Andy, is it okay if we go, I want to go back to the, there's three, there's three passages of the New Testament I want to share with people about yeah. to, to connect this idea of godliness with the image of God. Because I don't think most people think when they read about godliness in the New Testament, they don't think, oh, God's bringing us back to what he said in Genesis 1. I think he yeah. just thinks, oh, we live in a sinful world. He makes us his sons and daughters, and then he wants to make us good. So he's working out godliness. Yeah. Instead and- of saying, oh, wait, by making yeah. us his sons and daughters, he's making us his perfect image, which was our original purpose in creation. And he is reworking that yeah. so that they understand they understand revelation that in the end, God is going to remake creation and re put us in charge of it. Yeah. So that no, the, the end will be what he went, meant to accomplish in the beginning, except more gloriously. I think it's important also to, to say when, before you go back to those is that when I think what you mean by going back to before the fall and the beginning of creation is not what a... Um, there's complementarianism and then there's egalitarianism. And it's not what egalitarianists believe to like going back before the fall in which there was no order and everybody was equal. That's not what you mean, right? You mean that going back before yeah. the fall to which there was the perfect order of God, God to man to woman yeah. to creation. Right? Yeah, that's a significant debate, right? Whether, whether or not there was hierarchy before the fall. Right. And I think that it's very evident that there was a hierarchy between men, the male and the female before the fall. Yeah. And egalitarians often believe that it started after the fall. Yeah. Um, but I think Genesis 3 is clear that it starts to go bad after the fall. Yeah. That the, yeah. the relationship of complementarity becomes a relationship of subversion after the fall. That men and women are perfectly created to be yeah. complements to each other. But right. because they are that, they're also perfectly created to subvert each other. Yeah. Nothing can make your life wonderful like a woman if you're a man. And nothing can destroy your life like a woman if you're a man. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And vice versa. Yeah. And so I think that, um, yeah, so I think when, when egalitarians say, so, and so what happens is that they'll say, now that we're in the time of Christ in the spirit, since there wasn't a distinction between the man and the woman hierarchically before the fall in the church, there should be either now because we're the, yeah. we're the community being remade in the image of God. So we should go back to that pre-fall relationship. I think that's probably wrong both mm-hmm. in its understanding of what the pre-fall relationship was and even if that was true, that we could assume that we could go back to it mm-hmm. before the return of Christ. And there's some sense to like in, in that, like going back to the garden in some sense of, of finding the original order is good. But the Bible starts with the I remember Scott Kyle said to me, he was like, the Bible starts with the garden and it ends with a city. So the, the ultimate yeah. goal is to go back to the garden. Right. Yeah. I, Tim Keller made that statement popular. And I think it, that is true in a way, but it's a garden city. Like yeah, in, in some yeah. ways, think, think about, I mean, there's yeah. trees, there's rivers flowing through yeah. it. There's fruit to heal the nations. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not New York city. 
You know what I'm saying? I I imagine it to be, and part of it too is, is like, I don't know how much of it is metaphor and how much of it is it. For example, the, the city of God is a thousand feet high or a thousand miles high, a thousand Mm -hmm. miles. It's a cube. If you read the description in revelation and it's like a temple and it's a thousand miles high. Can you imagine a city that's a thousand miles tall? Yeah. Right. So I don't even freaking know what that means. (laughs) Right? Yeah. What right. I know is that it's the full dominion of God yeah. instantiated in the earth yeah. where he is bringing dominion through his um, raised from the dead and glorified believing beings mm-hmm. in beauty and harmony and life and all of that. I don't know what of it is literally exactly as it's described and what and what of those are metaphors of greater things that we don't have language for. Or that John didn't have language for. Yeah. Yes. You know, that he describes a certain right. way, but it's kind of like saying hell is a place where things burn. People burn. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's either that or worse. Yeah. They're like we got to right. use what we have to try to describe right. some of these things that we can't totally understand. Yeah. We yeah. use hyperbolic metaphors. Like the streets are paved in gold. That's a hyperbolic. It's not just a metaphor. It's a hyperbolic metaphor. It's like, what's the most valuable thing you can think of? Have, and it, yeah. the streets are paved with it. Right. Yeah. So it's a hyperbolic metaphor. It's a metaphor that's as big as you have language for. Okay. So that right. means the real thing is that good or it's better, right. but we just don't have, we can't get higher than hyperbole. Right. Yes. Right. So, so going yeah. back to the, so going back to the image of God and, and, and in the garden and the order and the hierarchy and knowing who we are as the idols of God, you say you have like three other biblical yeah, so, passages in connection right. to godliness. Right. So both the man and the woman are called to godliness, right? There's no yeah. distinction between man and woman right. in relationship to salvation And how we experience sanctification. There are differences in how it's embodied in what we do in the image between men and women. But there's no distinction in our reception of it, our call to it, our access to it, right? That's what it means that there's no neither male nor female, but we're all one in Christ. It doesn't mean there's no distinction at all in anything that we do. It doesn't mean that we're now like not engendered beings. What it means is is that we're there's no difference in our access in our reception. Of salvation, mm-hmm. right? So, but so th- these three scriptures, what they're what I, the reason I'm using these three is, all three of them refer to our creation in the image of God, and that in sanctification or being made like Christ, pursuing godliness, what God is doing is making us like the image again. Yeah. So right. one is Romans eight twenty nine. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness, icon, the icon, the image mm-hmm. of his son, mm-hmm. that he might be the first mortal among many brothers. So we tend to, tend to think of that as like a familial metaphor where you're like, yeah, we're the sons and daughters of God. Jesus is like our brother. But you see, that's actually image of God language, right? Mm-hmm. The, the mm-hmm. son is the perfect image of the father, Genesis 5, right? Yeah. Jesus is literally the perfect son, Right. Right. But when we are conformed to the likeness or image of that son, we become these perfect children that are like meaningfully the brothers of Jesus Christ, not in the familial sense of like Jesus is our brother in the sense that like as Jesus is the perfect image. Right. So we become his true brothers, the perfect image of God conformed to the likeness Hmm. of the son who is the true image of God. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean those other things, that Jesus yeah. is our spiritual brother and that there's a, there's a loyalty he has for us spiritually. But usually that metaphor is Jesus as the high priest or something else, which that's discussed, right? Yeah. In Colossians 3, 8 to 10, it says this, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices 
Hmm. and have put on the new self. So this is a reference to sanctification. You've already believed in Jesus. In believing in Jesus, you're putting flesh to death. What that means is in the attitudes of your mind and heart, you're taking what you know is part of that old life, that old self, and you're putting it off. You're throwing it away, right? right. And you're putting on the new self that's like Christ, right? Putting on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Yeah. So that new self is you that's being that's being renewed in the image of its creator. Both knowledge, remember the knowledge of good and evil? So the knowledge of good and evil that got sullied in the eating of the fruit, right. that's being renewed. Yeah, that can be. So that yeah. you really know God for who he is, instead of like this mishmash of all this knowledge that you can't sort out. That's the knowledge of good and evil that destroys you. And right. the image of its creator, right? right? You're being renewed in the image. So both of those things, the knowledge and image, go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Yeah. And what it means to be made is the image of God. And then the third one is in Ephesians, which is very similar to the last one. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Right. Right. To be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self created to be like God or in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Mm -hmm. So he talks about sanctification, the new self, the change of the attitudes of your minds, overcoming deceitful desires, right? By believing in Christ and following him and keeping in step with the spirit. And then how does he summarize this? All of that was so that you, because you were created hmm. or recreated in Christ to be like God or in God's likeness. And what does that mean? That you are going to exist and live and experience true righteousness and holiness. That is godliness. Hmm. Yeah. That's what it means to be like God, godliness. Right. So if you say like, Nick, how do I pursue all these things? Well, the first thing is read the New Testament <laughs> and pursue what it calls godliness, holiness, or righteousness in yeah. faith, not in legalism. And yeah. the way you do that is by imitating Jesus the Christ and his apostles and their teachings. I would also and, say – oh, Let me add just one yeah, more thing. Go ahead. And by be, being such a part of the local church and covenantal community yeah. that you find disciples of Jesus that you can imitate. Right. Yeah. And I would also say that like you – you, how do you begin? Like we said earlier, you, you begin with the fear of – God, you begin in trying right. to humble yourself to uh, understanding who you are in relation to God right. and that he is your authority. And, and that's probably the most difficult part of all of this, because that's like, that's uh, something that's going to be ongoing for the rest of your yeah. life is humbling yourself over and over again. Yeah. You are taking his dominion. This is his dominion. Creation is his dominion. You are part of his dominion, right? You are right. the coin on which his inscription is that should be given back to him. Yeah. And that mark of humility you can't, you can never take any authority in creation until you have the humility of, you know, whose creation you're taking authority in. Right. You know, and it's the same thing when you talk about men and women in marriage, right? Like mm -hmm. that, that relationship works best when both man and woman are under the authority of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. So the woman knows when to disobey her husband and yes. the husband knows exactly how to lead his wife. It's, 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 it's just like the government. It's like, just like the government. It's like, we're, we're called to, to, respect the authorities that God have, has put into place in the government, unless the government's going to tell us to do something that directly contradicts the teachings of Christ. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a similar thing. I, I want to ask real quick. Yeah, I don't similar. Know. Let me just so we don't get you in trouble yeah. with the women. Um, but the male, female relationship in marriage, 
though that authority differential exists, is much more intimate and comprehensive. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the decision yeah. making in the union is much right, closer right. than the government. But what you're saying that yeah. there's that there's this relationship and that sometimes you disobey the authority. Yeah. That's absolutely parallel. Yeah. The difference right. with men and women is that our relationships are much more intimate and cooperative. More, yeah. right. And therefore the dynamic of authority is much more benevolent and oftentimes completely below the surface. Right. Couples right. that are functioning in godliness, you might never even know that either of them believed in that hierarchy because they function so much as the <laughs> savior and the helper, the soter yeah. and the azer, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I got to ask one question and we don't need to totally get into it if you don't want to, but I thought it was interesting when you were saying that there's no difference between um it's not, I don't know. It, there's no difference between salvation in man and woman and like how we're in salvation. You said that and yeah. in 1 Timothy it says that a woman will be saved through child birth or right so that's right wherever my brain went to and yeah. maybe and so i'm like yeah, i can't I feel like give that, birth so. i feel like that needs like for at least 45 minutes so i could give a short version now but it gets worse yeah. than that so so um in first timothy it says <laughs> women will be saved through childbearing right and yeah. then um and then it says in first corinthians 11 about head coverings in the church yeah. it says men shouldn't cover their heads because they're the glory and image of god but women are the image are not the image but are the glory of man it doesn't yeah, say the image yeah. it just says right. glory yeah. And so people have really struggled with that. Like, what does that, does that, what does that mean? Cause obviously there's women who are infertile or who don't find a spouse in first Corinthians seven, God explicitly says singleness is a special thing, especially for virgins in that context, meaning women. So there's yeah. women who choose not to have children uh -huh. and be totally devoted to God. So are they not saved? They're clearly saved. That's a, that's actually a better position to be in. He says, right. so that can get really convoluted i yeah. think the clearest answer to this in the it, like very short because th this really deserves a lot of nuance mm -hmm. is that um if the closest thing to this is in ephesians 5 where it says that right. the husband is the savior of the wife right mm -hmm. and and the woman that is he stands in the place of christ in this in this metaphor between man and woman so man man and woman both image god yeah but also between the man and the woman, they image something else. They're a dual metaphor. Mm -hmm. They're a metaphor between the relation of God and his people. Right. Right. So the woman is standing both for God. She is the dominion taker of God in the image of God. But she has another role, which is right. she stands for the people of God. And the man right. stands for God. But then he has another role, which is he stands for God in relationship between God and his people in the marriage. Mm -hmm. So in one way, the man and woman are exactly the same. They both stand for God, right? They are his image and his dominion taker, but they also participate in a second metaphor. The woman stands for all of humanity or man, and the man stands for Christ or God in relationship to his people. Right. So in the relationship between men and women, they're both imaging and dominion taking on behalf of God as his dominion takers and image bearers. But they are also imaging the relationship between God and his people in his salvation history. Mm -hmm. Right. So the woman has two, in some sense, contradictory roles. Yeah. Right. She is the God figure and she is the creation the figure creation or the people figure. of God figure. So she is, in that sense, doing two things. Right. Yeah. And that affects her life in some really profound ways. One, yeah. she is the creator of new life and she is the image maker as the person who is capable of fertility. So yeah. later in First Corinthians 11, God says, woman came from man, meaning in Genesis 2, God created the woman from the side of the man. 
to be his Azair, his helper. But every man since then has come out of a woman. That is, the woman is the locus of fertility. Does that make sense? And so because of that, he says in 1 Corinthians 11, that man and woman are interdependent with each other in a loving way. Yeah. But that the woman, what she represents is the glory of man. Mm-hmm. That is the glory of what it means to be human as a human man and as humanity together, including the woman, right? Yeah. That there's a glory to that. Right. So it, so when in First Corinthians 11, he says, the man is both the image of God and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man, meaning the woman is the image of God, but she's the glory of man. The man is the image of God and the glory of God. And the glory of God. Does that yeah. make sense? Right. So what that means is that the woman is caught in that dual role. Part of that dual role is embodying or doing that dual role. Yeah. which includes her connection to bearing children, which also includes her being, quote, the weaker gender, that is the gentler gender, it says in First mm-hmm. Peter, which is why Peter says you cannot dominate your wife as a man because God made her to be gentler. And yeah. if you abuse that, you are destroying the created nature of God's realm, right? Yeah. You can't do yes. that. And so he won't listen to your prayers, meaning if you aren't kind to your wife, embracing her as the quote gentler gender then you disrupt the dominion and so god will stop listening to you you don't get to take dominion under god he stops listening to you because you're hurting your wife and destroying the dominion relationship of creation right right that's also why it says women are saved through childbearing why does it say that because just before that it said that men are supposed to be elders in the church and Mm -hmm. not women Right. Mm -hmm. So men have this this one role that they do that women don't in the family and in the church. That is the two comprehensive institutions God makes for the flourishing of human beings in their humanness. Right. right? And so there's this role that the man has in the family and in the church that is singular to himself. Right. Right. So what does the woman have that's singular to herself? In what way is she not subject to the man functionally? Right. Yes, in hierarchy, she's subject to the man in a way. But in what way is she, what is singular to her? And the answer is, she's the only person on planet earth that can make other human beings so that God can have godly offspring. She's it. She's the only one. And that is part of her imaging God in salvation. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is, she is saved. That is saved from being less than the man who is the elder of the church because she provides the humans that are shepherded. Yeah. Without her, there, there are no humans. There is no church. There is no humanity. And I know sometimes that's hard for women to hear now because we have so downplayed the centrality of childbearing. Yeah, yeah. But, I, I've, that bothers me that that's like difficult for people to hear because I'm like – But women who have children, especially if they have more than two, which is necessary for human beings to continue to exist, will tell to, you that yeah. having children was the most consequential thing in their whole life. Yeah. Right. And one of the reasons why they didn't pursue their career more, they didn't pursue leadership more, was they recognized their children really needed them in a tender, kind, and nurturing role. And right. that they dare not abandon right. that because they love their children. And that's true. And so women, women experience this divided nature, right? Because right. like most men, one of the reasons why they do so well in their career is they get to focus on it because they're not bound in gestating children, nursing children, being closer to children in the earlier stages of their lives. And that'll kill 10 years of a woman's career before you know it, especially if they have three or four kids. So my and question, so, real so quick, that, Mike. that distinction creates this, this is, is, is one is theological in what the woman is representing in the world. She's representing humanity and mm. the people of God, but then also it's instantiated in her being, right? She is the fertile one. 
and the one and there are things that go along with fertility like vulnerability, physical weakness, softness of body and um and I don't know if if this is what Paul means in 1 Timothy 2, but he seems to insinuate that the woman was more capable of being deceived than the man. If that's the case, and I'm not sure that's what that text means, it would be because of her roles and responsibilities as a woman that weren't part of being a man. That is, hmm. that she is naturally more caring and loving and tender. Right. And therefore, that's why the serpent went after her. Now, that's a more tenuous thing, and Paul does not explicitly say it. He just says she was deceived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You're, yeah. But it seems to be his reasoning for why men are supposed to be elders. Right. So that gets a little iffy. But the other things that women have children, that they're specially bound to it, that their physical frame and body is made for nurturing, their skin is 50% softer. It's why their their fat is just under their skin rather than intramuscular like with men. Their mm. muscle tone is different than ours. All of that makes them the, quote, weaker or tenderer gender. Mm-hmm. I mean, God could have made it so that women had the babies, but we had the boobs and lactated mm-hmm. and nursed kids <laughs> and split it up, but he didn't, right? right women right. are all of these things. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why all the ancient cultures had their ungets, their female goddess, because all yeah. of fertility, life, humanity flowed from the womb and the breasts of the woman, right? Mm-hmm. And like when feminism took off, people got, women got in touch with this quote, womanist theology of the ancient world. But the problem is because they got the pill about the same time, they separated it from fertility. Yeah. When in the ancient world, it was all about fertility. It was connected it came to fertility. along yeah. with it. Right. And yeah, why yeah. women were so, quote, superior or they were so integral to human existence because of the relationship of fertility to yeah. everything else. I don't understand why women want – this is what I don't understand. And I also – I'm going to say this. I think that it. what we're going to do with this biblical anthropology series, we're going to do parts one through four, which is going to be the main stuff. And then we're going to do a couple bonus episodes. And one of them is going to be specifically on this topic of women being the glory of man or whatever, however we want to uh, discuss yeah. that and talk more in depth about but that. I think, but I think it's, I want to say just because you know sometimes people don't listen to whole podcasts. So I want to hit like really close to what, to what I just said. <clears throat> at the same time, women are every bit as much a dominion taker and imager of God as men. Like the, yeah. they are dominion takers, but, but like there's these subsets of actions that take place in that dominion taking as laid out in Genesis two and following right. where there are differences between men and women, but women are 100% image bearers. They're 100% dominion takers. They are rulers over creation. They are like, they are these God instantiating figures of great power and they're in there more than fertility mm-hmm. creators. Mm-hmm. They are right. all, all those eight things that I said, women are participants in, but there is a uniqueness to female participation in yeah. procreation. And yeah. if we downplay that as human beings, it is not just theologically wrong. It, it's both inhuman. It's a bad anthropology. And it's blasphemous. It's a bad theology. Why are we upplaying the elders and that and the responsibility roles of man? Because that that always confused me. Because it was like the one great thing about motherhood, I think, is that you get to see your what you've put into these children come to fruition. And I mean, they grow up and you get to watch them grow up. And a lot of, in a lot of churches, it's like, you're an elder for a certain time of period of time. You're a pastor for a certain period of time. And the church lasts longer than you. And you don't ever get to see things come to fruition. And it seems like we've like idolized this like leadership role and women want to be elders. And it's like, why, why would you even want to do like, I don't, I don't even know if I'd want to be an elder and I'm a dude because you don't ever get to see anything come to fruition. Sometimes, sometimes you never see anything happen. 
Yeah, I think there's that. I think that's a good point that women have women in some ways have a more diachronic relationship to human life, meaning th- through more time, like the scope of time is longer. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's true. I also think there's this really interesting idea in Chesterton where he talks about how women do everything. Mm-hmm. And it's because of that, they don't get to specialize in much. And mm-hmm. so they don't get to do anything like in a specialized way. They're always just like getting through a hundred different things. And so women can <laughs> often be demoralized by the fact that they're doing lots of things at, at like a B grade instead yeah. of like a couple things at an A grade. Yeah. And they do it for a bunch of critters that don't thank them nearly enough, including their husbands, but specifically their children. Yeah, right. And that really affects women too. I think the way I've tried to handle this in the church, because obviously I pastor a complementarian church. We believe there are distinctions between men and women. The only one being in the church that men are elders, right? Yeah. Women do everything else in the church, but that role of elder in which discipline is done and doctrine is protected and heretics are refuted and so on. That hard work, the work where you have to head a forehead of flint and you have to fight battles, mm-hmm. that men are supposed to do. Um, and because women aren't supposed to have to concern themselves with it Right. I, you you I mean pastors as well, elders and pastors. Right? Yeah. To, I believe pastor, elder, and overseer in the Bible are interchangeable terms. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yes. But I, I think that it's important. One of the ways I try to show this in my church is by sub- being a submitter myself. Right. Yeah. Because, yes, I believe that the dynamic of my relationship is my husband, my, my God has called my wife to submit to me. Yeah. But I believe that she should like, okay. When I used to play basketball for my church in Florida, the refs were always terrible. I mean, just, I mean, who refs a church league, right? Yeah. Like only the worst refs. Right. (laughs) And so we would like get so frustrated at the refs because they were terrible. And I'd get into the huddle with the guys. I say, listen, guys, we cannot expect these refs to be better at refing than we are at playing basketball. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We are terrible at basketball and they are terrible at refing. Right. 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 And so like one of the things I, I've tried to, to model in the church is I can never expect my wife to submit to me better than I submit to Jesus the Christ. Yeah. Right. Right. So, right. and, and th- what that looks like in the church is that I submit to the other elders. Yeah. It, I absolutely submit to Jesus and the truth what that means is that if a woman comes up to me in the church and says, Nick, you're wrong about X and she's correct, you, yeah. she has the truth on her side, then right. she is my God, right? Like she has she has stepped rightfully in the place of God because she's reiterated his commandment to me. And yeah. so I have to submit to her because by yeah. submitting to her, I'm submitting to God, not just yeah. the woman, right? right. Yeah, so there was, there was this place in the church, this is like 10 years ago where we were, the elders were going to move money around in a way that I had approved of. And it was probably wrong, but it was probably also justifiable. And this woman who was actually a, she was a doctoral student in women's studies and she already felt sheepish in a complementarian church, but she's just like, I just don't think this is right. She's like, I feel like this money was given for that. This other thing just isn't close enough. I just feel like this is just not the highest level of integrity. We shouldn't do it. And this elder stood up to like kind of talk her down and I, I just felt at that moment I had to be like, okay, wait, she's right. Mm-hmm. And so I spoke up and I said, listen, Bethany's right. And I just feel like we should let her words weigh on us for a minute here and then decide what we're going to do. And so, yeah. and then she won the day, like they voted against it. The elders and I had to go do all this work over again yeah. because this, she was a woman. Was she an elder? No, but she in the spirit we recognized that she was speaking for god like she was correct and and so she she was the deborah in that moment like it doesn't matter if she's a woman like yeah 
Right. If God is on her side, then she's right and you should submit to her, right? Right. In that scenario, it doesn't, who cares if she's a woman? What matters is if, is there any validity to what she's saying? Yeah. And that's the same with men too in the church. Like not all men are elders in the church, but it's like if a man right. came to you guys and was like, that's not how you should spend the money rather than being like, well, we're elders and you're not. No, you got to right. take into consideration what they're saying. Is this true? Is it not? If it is, then you got to do something. About right. It. And so like when you said, who cares if she's a woman? I know what you mean by that. Like meaning like who cares if she's a man or a woman yes but, the, but part of it is what matters is that she she's a woman so she is the glory of man but she's also the image yeah. of god right. and so when yeah. she stands up and says this is wrong yeah she's a woman but but and as a woman she is the image of god yes and yeah, she's yeah, just yeah, speaking yeah. the yeah. word of god and you'd better listen to it which right. is i think why um women aren't elders but women are prophets yeah. So in First Corinthians 11, all this thing about head coverings or whatever, it's because mm -hmm. Paul is saying women should prophesy in the church. Hmm. They should speak for God, hmm. right? Even if their job isn't to protect and refute doctrine, yeah. they do get to speak for God. Yeah. Right. Because the prophetic word can come to anybody who bears his image. We're all dominion takers. Yeah. And, so and the, so I think like... it's super important. Let me just say like one last yeah. thing here. That's why I think it's super important in complementarian churches that men are constantly pursuing humility and the right forms of submission to display yeah. submission everywhere because yeah. it's 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 the only way to be godly right. as men it's the only way to really value the women in the church and it's the only way to demonstrate to the children of the church how we should all be living and loving each other and it's also the only way to live in a worldly world that is feminist in mm -hmm. some of the wrong ways and some of the good ways right. what feminism or the right valuing of women and men together should look like when god is king Right. Does that make sense? And yeah. so, and I think the best way to see if this is working is you just keep your pulse on how women are doing in your church. Right? <laughs> I agree. Yeah. And not how annoyed they are at your theology, but whether or not their lives are flourishing and whether or not they feel respected and loved. Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree. I always thought that, that, well, I won't get into that, but basically, yes. So kind of to, to recap what this podcast has, has been about is the goal of this podcast was just discuss what is the image of God and ultimately what like we always do we went on like like at least five or six different tangents which I think is good because I think it helps yeah. people understand the complexities but the, the image of God is is the rather the image the idol I think is that that would be a better a better way of saying it going forward mm -hmm. is like we are the idol of God Rather than the no, image I would of God. keep saying image because I think all four of those metaphors are good, right? There's okay. the there's yeah. the idol, there's the the imperial statue, there's the great yeah. image, but then the most perfect one is the son, the child, the son. Yeah. that's fully shaped in the image, right? Right. And so the, I, we should use the language of the image and likeness of God, but then mm -hmm. ultimately, this is why we say we're the sons and daughters of God. It's mm -hmm. not just that God loves us. Most people think we're the sons and daughters of God, so God loves us. Yes, right. that's true. But bigger than that, the son and the daughter of the parent is the perfect representation of the parent, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? That was, we don't think about that in our modern world, but that was a huge part of the metaphor in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And I think that the most important thing is that us being the image of God, I think it does two things. I think it reminds us of how, I don't, I don't know, maybe important, probably not important, but how like, I guess, yeah, how important we are to God, but then how useless we are without God because you can't be an image of something if that something isn't there. So you, you have to, you have to be where we are the image. So those two yeah. things are important. Okay. Yeah. I think this is something we need to talk about in the one on sin. 
Yeah. Because I would say instead of saying worthless, I think you're using worthless in a broad sense there as well, opposed I said to useless. degradation. Useless. Yes. Useless, I think that's good. Yeah. And I think like in that list I gave degradation yeah. was one of the things I said. We're we're not worthless or uh, I think we we can, I think you can be right that we could be useless, but dignity versus degradation is the metaphor I would use. That like either we're coming yes. up into the dignity of our of our nature, yeah, in our being, or we're degrading it. And the thing that's yes. so the reason why God punishes sin is because we are responsible for our own being. Yeah, to live according yeah. to our nature. Otherwise, it is right. a sin against creation and the world and our purpose and our responsibility. Right. You know? So yeah. Right. I struggle with with the. <laughs> humans having dignity apart from Christ. And we should do a whole thing on that because I also yeah. think that dignity needs to be like but redefined. They but they do. And like, that's why it is an, in, in, in like an incredible sin for like the Chinese government to be killing Uyghur Muslims. None of those people are Christians. Yeah. Right? But, like, it, uh, but those people bear the image of God and they should be treated a certain way and they're not being treated in that way. How do you correlate that with, I keep reading in Romans, I believe it's Romans, when Paul quotes the Old Testament and saying that Christian, or that, 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 out, like, I, essentially outside of Christ, you are useless. And he goes through this whole long list of, of these, like, things that we are um, outside of Christ. And it's like, you, it's all these bad things. But the, I think the first or the second one that he says is useless. And I'm like, if we're useless, then. Like what makes us useful would that, that would just be Christ, not our image that we're built in. I know we're far into this, but that's. Yeah. I think you should put that under the questions for the, for the sin one. But I think the short answer to that is we wouldn't be damnable if we didn't have dignity. The fact is we, we can't mean nothing. There's some things like that. Like, like, Two dollar things I buy that were made in China and they just break and I just throw them in the garbage because they just they're yeah. useless but they mean nothing. Yeah. But if I bought my truck and drove it up here and I expect right. it to like function from the work I'm doing for like twelve years and it just breaks and dies on me, I'm way more angry because like yeah. my investment in what that was supposed to be for me and what it was designed to be and it's, yeah. it's so much bigger. Yeah. And yeah. human beings are the ultimate creation. Yeah. for our purpose. So are we useless? Yes, we become useless because we're doing the opposite. We're actually tearing down what we're supposed to build up. Yeah. But it's because we've become degraded. Mm. Right? It's and like a, a I, mean, I mean between, it's like a yeah, prostitute. Is she is she right. sexually useless? Well, yes, she is in that she is not in co-union with yeah. her husband ordering her sexuality towards fertility and love and companionship. Yeah. She's but it's not because she's literally useless sexually. She's being used in a degraded way sexually and using herself in a degraded way yeah. sexually and being used by somebody profiting from her in a degraded right. way sexually. But the reason why prostitution is such a terrible thing is because she means so much. Yeah. Right. Even in that state. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that I I, I mix up uh, – not mix up, but I think I need to think more about useless and worthless and how those two things right. are – Right. You can be 100% useless and you and can be worthless. incredibly worthwhile. Yeah. But we're not worthy of the grace of God also. No. No, but even that splits into <laughs> uh, there's so many that, things. Like, but that's where you get back to the the dizzying and the like the the complex and the responsible. Like the, yeah, the yeah, more yeah. you dig into right. this, the more you're like, oh yeah, there's multiple meanings of that. And like of all of these, yeah. we we just we we right. think in such cloudy ways now. Yeah. That like we have no idea what clear thinking even is, and so you get a little yeah. clear, and you're like, oh my gosh, the world is so complicated. Like, yeah. yeah. Right. 
Yeah, yeah so read exactly the scriptures, read yeah. the scriptures and do what God says and, and imitate Jesus and his apostles. Find right. somebody godly in your church and imitate them. Yeah. And absolutely. it could be, it'll be that simple. If you're willing yeah. to believe and have, that's why God says faith is so important. Hmm. Just believe him, believe he yeah. has told you the truth. Right. And then as you go through choosing to obey God, you'll learn a lot of wisdom. Right. Gosh, there's things that pop into my head. You're like, just, you're like, have faith. And I'm like, well, what about the gift of faith that we're supposed to pray for? There's like so many things that pop into my head, but yes, that all, that all makes sense. And I think that, that I, I do think that this is a good part one to understanding what is the image of God and our human biblical anthropology. And so yeah. next week we're going to be going through how the fall has affected our anthropology and kind of talking about Genesis three and the, yeah, um, if you're listening to this that. and you're like, wait, you guys never really worked out that list of eight things Nick says was in Genesis 2. I actually do that in my two sermons on this. Yeah. So you'll have to, you'll have, if, if Andy doesn't do an episode on it, you'll have to go to my church and listen to the yeah. to the second and third sermons in this series at my church, High Point Church yeah. in Madison, Wisconsin, where I go through like work, fertility, expansion, complementarity, authority, comprehensiveness, righteousness, and dignity, and right. their opposites in the fall. Yeah. And how that works. We might talk right. about that a little bit it, when we talk about the fall, how the fall degrades all of those. Yeah. But if you want a little bit more expo- exposition, those yeah. are, you can find that there. Yeah. So next week, how has the fall affected our anthropology? Um, but I think that that does it for this one. Um, you have anything else you want to say? So much, but we got to stop somewhere, right? Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, thank you all for listening and we'll see you in the next one. Goodbye. Goodbye.